And certainly, I think you can do remarkable things in this day and age with, with medicine for psychiatric illnesses like bipolar illness and anxiety disorders and depression. But it's not necessarily enough. It, I think it requires a deeper understanding and a deeper way of learning from what you've got and kind of a bomb. And uh, medicine's not necessarily a bomb. And, and indeed, I think with psychiatric medicines, uh, they leave people down a pretty rocky road for a while. You're listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and calling in today, we have Kay Redfield Jameson. Dr. Jameson is perhaps best known as the author of An Unquiet Mind. She's also a professor of psychiatry at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and co-author of The Standard Medical Text on Bipolar Disorder. Also, she's written many other books, including the Pulitzer Prize-nominated Robert Lowell, Setting the River on Fire. Her latest book, Fires in the Dark, Healing the Unquiet Mind, is out now. Dr. Jameson, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Delighted to be here. It is truly my pleasure to have you here. In the description of your new book, you say that this book is partly a cultural history of the treatment and healing of mental illness. Now, your your book focuses a lot on war and the experiences of soldiers in war. And specifically, you write a lot about World War One, and you write about post-traumatic stress disorder, the PTSD of the soldiers who fought. Is there a reason that you put so much attention in that direction? Um. I would say I chose World War One for a couple of reasons. Um, one is I think the kind of trauma and suffering is much clearer uh, to people than if you describe, try to describe the suffering of depression. So I wanted to start my book with something that was obviously um, the trauma of a really awful trench, trench war. I also, I, one of the things I, I wanted to do in my book was to incorporate the people who over the years and the writers and clinicians whom I've admired and drawn from and put them together in one book to sort of kind of pull from what I, what I've learned from them, I hope. And I would say with um, the first world war, there are two people when I was a high school student and I was recovering from a breakdown, my high school English teacher gave me a couple of books. Uh, the poetry of Robert Lowell and some books about King Arthur because I was interested in, in King Arthur and tragedy. But he also gave me the uh, diaries of Sigurd Sassoon, the great World War I poet. And in his writings about the First World War, which were brilliant, um, he wrote about his relationship with his psychiatrist, W.H.R. Rivers, who was an anthropologist, a medical psychologist, a psychiatrist, a deeply um, broad-minded and, and well-educated uh, and empathetic man. And he actually was very um, instrumental in changing attitudes or trying to change attitudes about um, shell shock, uh, which was kind of the f- earlier version of uh, PTSD because people thought it was malingering. People thought people were just making it up, just trying to get out of the war. And he was very importantly involved in that. But I have been a fan of W.H.R. Rivers since I was 17 and then in, briefly again in, in graduate school when it came up. And so I 
was intrigued by of all the kind of archetypal relationships, psychotherapeutic relationships. If you had to describe it, you would take Sigrid Sassoon's description of his relationship with W.H.R. Rivers and how he helped him heal. A deeply moving relationship and a profound relationship. And Sassoon, being a great poet, was able to put that into words, uh, actually quite simple, beautiful words. So I wanted to start off with that. But also from a history of psychotherapy point of view, even though it's ancient, the immediate, more immediate uh, origins of formal psychotherapy were right around the time, just before the First World War, time of Jung and, and Freud and so forth. So it's it's a very important time. But I was very interested in the healer reverse. Dr. Jameson, I, I was really surprised to learn that at any point in history, uh, shell shock, post-traumatic stress disorder was ever looked down upon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the soldiers were looked at as malingerers and cowards. Yes, and they were shot. Why cowards? Is it because their minds couldn't handle it? Uh, well, because in the middle of a war, uh, there's a practical aspect if you need men to fight. And if people are saying showing symptoms of uh, of shock, in this case, shell shock, um, you lose fighting men. So if, I think some people would say from a cynical point of view, the army point of view, that's one perspective. Another perspective is that all sorts of people were going out and dying. It was an incredibly ghastly war in terms of death. And um, the assumption was you would do your bit and that if you didn't, you were a coward. I, I think that was not that far from general social beliefs. And so what the psychiatrists were were forced to do, were, I mean, by virtue of their job, and Rivers was no exception, he had to get the soon well enough to go back and fight. I mean, Rivers was an army officer as well as a doctor. And as an army officer, his obligation was to get his patients, in his case, officers, because he was treating officers, well enough to go back to fight. Uh, so there's a particularly uh, brutal aspect of things. And then there were people who were shot for cowardice and their doctors, some of their doctors had to put like a white cloth over their heart to make it easier to find for the firing squad to shoot them. So the PTSD has not, and, and to this day, I mean, I, I was at UCLA uh, after the Vietnam War those soldiers went through an incredible amount of stigma, and they still do. I think people are much, much, much better informed now than they used to be, but they still go through awful shame. I appreciate the fact that you said it's improving, and obviously if there were firing squads, it, literally murdering people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, it, it's a vast improvement that we're no longer doing that. But as far as society is concerned and, and even the medical community is concerned, how has the treatment and acceptance of PTSD changed from World War One to now? First of all, I think people just know a lot more about it. Um, they know about the symptoms, they know the kind of natural course of the symptoms. They know the lingering trauma uh, that can go on for years. Uh, there's much more medical knowledge treatment uh, with medications and, and group therapies and, and so forth. So it's still incredibly painful for people coming back from war zones to try and get well. 
But I do think society has a better understanding. Is is some of it is we actually are very isolated from the military. Most people don't aren't in proximity to veterans hospitals or to army posts. So that you know, I know that when I was in my father was in the Air Force all my life, the posts, the Air Force and Army posts were just away from places, you know. So there was a pretty isolated uh, world there. I think one of the other things is that's changed is just the level of expertise. If you look at the uh, doctors at at Walter Reed and uh, all the Army posts around, they they just have more training more caring. Um, you know, I, I think the military has tried extremely hard to understand this. It's still a huge problem. It is still a huge problem. And I'm glad that more and more people are becoming aware of it and talking out about it. Now, moving on, your book also contains a lot of stories and histories of people who you feel demonstrated great healing and courage. And you you call these people exemplary figures. One of the people that you talk about is Paul Robeson, and he was a great black singer and activist, and he's just done so many incredible things. But of of all the available folks, what made you choose him? Um, partly because I think, like quite a few people, I was brought up on his music. My father loved Paul Robeson and uh, had his music going a lot. It was sort of a background to my childhood in many respects. And my father, who was an Air Force pilot, was always intrigued and interested in the idea of what is courage and what does courage allow you to do? Why is it necessary in some circumstances? He used to say that Paul Robeson, from his point of view, was the most courageous man in America. And I didn't quite understand that at the time because I didn't know all that Paul Robeson had been through. But as time goes by and you return to people you've admired or loved their work, loved their art, and you see them in different ways, you you can sort of draw upon the strength. He went through just terrible things from the government for his political activism, and he paid a terrible cost for it. And he was a deeply principled man, and he just never buckled. He never gave in to the horrendous life that was given to him in in many respects. He was someone who sang from that and cared about other people and extended his um, musical genius to the lives of other people. And he worked the lives of people who had it far worse than he did, you know, the miners and and the unionists and and everybody. But he he really cared and he did something about it. And I, I find that incredibly admirable. And, um, you know, I've gone back to his music in different ways at different times, as I think people do. And, you know, one of the things I think is just becoming aware of the things that mean so much to you at different points in your life and going back and kind of stitching them together uh, and making something beautiful and meaningful and consoling out of them. Is Paul Robeson's life an example of resiliency towards the goal? I I think this applies very well to mental suffering or managing mental illness because it's so difficult. Healing the mind is difficult. And and we have this goal to heal ourselves. And Paul Robeson's life, he had a goal. It was a difficult goal, but he was resilient. Does that encapsulate that and one of the reasons that people should be so intrigued by his story to apply to their own lives? 
Well, I think some of it is, much of it is his art, you know, is he had an extraordinary voice that had great beauty, great pathos. And it was a voice that had a kind of sorrow in it that is just inexpressible. You know, I would say first and foremost, his his art, but also his courage in taking on what he saw as the injustices in the world, which were very clearly injustices. And he didn't give up despite the the problems that he encountered. So I think that if you can admire somebody, and even if you can't be that admirable, and if you, even if you can't be that courageous, um, and certainly even if you can't sing like that, um, to have that person in your life is a gift. And I think that in many respects, artists and writers give us this incredible gift of the experience of their lives and the ability to put the experience and the pain and suffering of their lives into a form that we can learn from it. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com. Gabe Howard here to tell you about the Inside Bipolar podcast from Healthline Media. He does the show with me. Dr. Nicole Washington, a board-certified psychiatrist. That's right. A guy living with bipolar and a psychiatrist team up to discuss living well with bipolar disorder. Listen now on your favorite podcast player or visit psychcentral.com slash IBP to learn more. Subscribe now so you don't miss out. And we're back with Dr. K. Redfield Jameson, author of the new book, Fires in the Dark, Healing the Unquiet Mind. I noticed that you talk a lot about heroes and artists and explorers, them being a critical part of the notion of healing the mind. Why are you so attracted to that? Um, partly, again, because it's, it's interesting and because people who have done brave things, uh, explorers or uh, some artists, uh, people who've, who've been out in the world and taken real risks, have very genuine things to teach. And I think exemplars are very important that when we grow up, we have heroes. I mean, I had Billy Mitchell, I had King Arthur, uh, you know, a, a lot of people. And I think that if you lose that capacity to believe in heroes, it's sort of a deadening effect and you can bring them into your lives. One of the things I, I, I try to emphasize is really that you've got to create your own world. You know, you can't just passively receive treatment and care. You can, but it's not going to be work as well or be as meaningful as if you bring something to it. If you bring, if you make your own islands of things that sustain you, of artists and writers and heroes and memories, and music and all the things that keep people going, nature, uh, those things are important to, to begin to fill out your life so that you can draw upon it. I mean, you can't do that when you're 
morbidly depressed, of course. I mean, you don't feel like doing anything. Uh, but when you begin to get better, when you begin to heal, those things can put the pain and the suffering in, in perspective and give some moment to it. I think it's lost on our society that creativity, things like singing, painting, performing, it can just be a hobby. You don't have to have a desire to be famous or to monetize it or to do it for a living in order to enjoy it and get benefit from it. Are you saying that? Are you saying that doing something creative or artistic can help you heal from mental suffering or mental illness? Absolutely. But I, w I would also say it's not even that you have to be so creative yourself, though, that may help. It's drawing upon the creativity of others, it's drawing upon the long history of our species, of how people have dealt with pain and suffering. One of the great things about writers, I mean, it's not great for them, but it's great for other people, is that so many of them have been depressed. So that when you begin to get better, you can bridge things over and make things more meaningful and put yourself in the company of people you admire by listening to their music or reading their books, realizing that not only you're not alone, but that people have given purpose to their lives. Because I think that one of the hardest things to do is, is to make that step from being sick, psychotic, severely depressed, whatever, to feeling like you can take something from the awfulness and give back to society. And, and there's just a huge literature, clinical literature, on how the importance of purpose, of having something that is larger than you are, that contributes to the greater good. So talking about healing from mental suffering, you say that in recent years, psychotherapy has been relegated to the sidelines in favor of medication when it comes to the treatment of mental illness. Now, I personally don't think that's a good thing. In your opinion, why has this happened? Um, I think it's the main reason it's happened is financial, economic. Uh, we don't, as a society, I think, put the same kind of money and time and effort and caring into treating psychiatric illnesses as perhaps we do other illnesses. And there are enough psychiatrists, there are enough psychologists, there are enough nurse practitioners or social workers. There just aren't enough people. And I think one of the things that's been very clear as a result of COVID is how stressed the system is. People don't even have enough time and resources to see somebody for medication. Uh, psychotherapy can be expensive and it's time consuming. It's, it's just not something that has a high priority. And I think for a long time when people pressed only psychotherapy for illnesses like bipolar illness or depression, you know, that wasn't enough. It didn't work. And so psychotherapy got relegated to the sidelines, perhaps for good cause, uh, because it was being prescribed for the wrong illnesses at the wrong time and the wrong, and the wrong point in the illness. But I think now the evidence is, is quite clear that people respond better for depression and bipolar with adjunctive psychotherapy in addition to medication. So it doesn't mean everybody needs it, but it's a, a tremendously powerful treatment when it's done well, when it's done right. I'm really surprised that there is a pushback against the idea that, that psychotherapy would be helpful, just given the fact that we know that it can be helpful in managing things like grief. So why couldn't it be helpful in managing things like the, the aftermath of a bipolar diagnosis? Do you think we are getting better at understanding that we need multiple pathways to recovery 
and multiple treatment options available? Or are we still just very, very stuck on this concept of, again, these are my words, uh, the magic pill? Um, no, I think things have changed a lot. I think most people in clinical psychiatry, clinical psychology would absolutely say psychotherapy is often not only recommended, but necessary. It's more that there was a phase when only psychotherapy was being used to treat basically pretty biologically based illnesses that psychotherapy overpromised what it could do. And as a result, there was kind of a swing back. And I think what happened was then there was too much of a swing toward medication alone. And now I think most people, most people who treat these illnesses uh, would say, no, you need both. These are illnesses that are devastating in terms of people's notions of themselves, what people have done to themselves or done to other people, what they've left undone. These are illnesses that may be genetic in their basis, but the manifestation of them is behavioral. I mean, people do things and don't do things uh, that lead them down very, very traumatic paths. And so I, I think the major consideration now in psychotherapy is is, is cost. The uh, healthcare system is a mess. I could not agree more, Dr. Jameson. The, the healthcare system is absolutely a mess, especially when it comes to mental health. But there are some people that they, they, they could afford it. They do have the insurance, the resources, uh, e even in, in some cases, the time. And they just choose not to in lieu of programs that they find online or apps that they download or or even supplements that they're buying in gas stations because they just have this idea of alternative medicine for mental health works. And and, and that is the setup for my question. Psychotherapy has ancient roots in, in both medicine and religion. So I would think that more people would be on board of this idea of healing yourself. Now, how does it show itself in our current times? How is that all fitting together for folks today? Well, I think there are a couple of things. One thing is that psychotherapy, in ways completely unfathomable to me, has made itself relatively boring and passe. And my hope with my book is to make it as interesting, or at least aspire to make it as interesting as it is. I mean, psychotherapy is a fascinating, fascinating sort of thing. And I think in this day and age, people kind of have either a notion of a very structured uh, psychotherapy, which certainly could be effective at times, but it's not everybody's cup of tea. And people don't talk about it in the same way that they used to. I mean, we used to be, you know, people who even talked about their therapist and perhaps to a nauseating degree. But I think what's happened is that there are just so many alternatives out there that people don't really fully appreciate what psychotherapy is when it's done well. And the questions that addresses in, in your commenting on the, um, the ancient roots, one of the things that I hope to convey was this is a part of human nature, this need for healing. Uh, this need for understanding where we've been, where we're going, why we're doing what we're doing, um, how we can uh, heal the pain that we've been through. And this goes back to religious roots. It goes back to the most ancient times. And that's, to me, what makes it interesting. It's not, I mean, psychotherapies, types of psychotherapies and medication, particular medications, come and go. What doesn't come and go is that very human need to heal suffering, 
to make some sense of suffering, to bring some purpose from the suffering. I've been curious, Dr. Jameson, I noticed that in your book and even throughout this interview, when you talk about healing, you say mental suffering rather than mental illness. May I ask why that is? Um, Because people suffer, you know, grief is not a mental illness, but it's certainly profoundly a kind of suffering. And I think that the the roots of from from religion and and medicine into psychotherapy are are again their human roots and their human sufferings. Certainly, mental illness is terrible suffering, but people suffer from all sorts of things. And I didn't want to limit the book to just discussing mental illness, although obviously mental illness is close to my heart. Dr. Jameson, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Nice to talk with you. It was nice to speak with you as well, and I want to give a big thank you to all of our listeners. Remember, Kay Redfield Jameson's new book, Fires in the Dark, Healing the Unquiet Mind, is available now. My name is Gabe Howard, and I'm an award-winning public speaker, and I could be available for your next event. I also wrote the book Mental Illness as an Asshole and Other Observations, which you can get on Amazon. However, you can get a signed copy with free show swag or learn more about me just by heading over to GabeHoward.com. Wherever you downloaded this episode, please follow or subscribe to the show. It is 100% free. And hey, can you do me a favor? Recommend the show. Send a text message, an email, put it on social media, talk about it around the water cooler, mention it in a support group, because sharing this show is how we grow. I will see everybody next Thursday on Inside Mental Health. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away. And then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.